to turn to Acts chapter 13. And I'm relieved to find the rest of my notes up here left over from the morning service. Y'all were about to have a really, really short message. Let me add a few things uh, <clears throat> to what's been said already. Uh, if you've been with us for a while, you'll know that Matt and Haley are on an extended break. And so just want to remind you guys to be praying for them while they're away, praying that the Lord would uh, refresh them, restore them, and that they would come back um, full of energy. And uh, so pray for them in that regard. And also pray for them with their family, with their girls, that it would just be a, a really, really good time for them and that they would be able to be um, unhindered and unfettered enjoyment of one another over this next six or seven weeks. I also want to say Happy Father's Day. I think Jason mentioned that already, but Happy Father's Day to you. And as I mentioned in the first service, I know every family has different words that they use for things, but uh, I think um, <clears throat> everybody has a father. Not everybody has a dad. And if you, uh, if you have a dad, if you have a father that's been engaged in your life and who has set a good foundation for you, then that's something to be thankful to them about, but it's also th something to be thankful to our Heavenly Father about. And so hopefully you'll be able to enjoy that today with your father. I, I do recognize that not everybody who would like to be a father is a father, and so our prayers would be with those of you in that situation this morning. Uh, but at the same time, we want to celebrate what, what God has done in the, in the gift of children and in the gift of dads. I believe that's all that I had on those things. So Acts chapter 13. Uh, this morning, we're going to read a long passage of Scripture, a long se uh, section. I think it's <clears throat> uh, beneficial and good to do that. Uh, but uh, typically, I'll ask you to stand and, and uh, read with me. But if you're not physically able, I, I completely understand that. But if you are physically able, I'll ask you to stand as we read from Acts chapter 13. We're going to begin at verse 13 and read then through the end of the chapter. Time out. I know what I forgot. A lot of y'all are praying for Laura, my wife, who had surgery a couple of weeks ago, and she's doing well. She had a little bit of a setback this week. She had some infection in the incisions where the surgery was. Uh, so the last three days or so haven't been as good, but this morning she seemed to be bouncing back. Uh, so I appreciate you guys praying for her at least wanted to report a little bit. All right then, Acts chapter 13, beginning at verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and they sat down. And after reading from the law and the prophets... The rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if any of you have a word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and, motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness and after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. 
And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and the rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found him, and though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that God promised to the fathers. This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid to his, with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath day, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling them. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles, for the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing, and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district but they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit I'll ask you to pray together with me before we dive into these verses <clears throat> Lord
Lord, I thank you that your mercies are new every morning. And I'm thankful that you, in your mercy, come to us as people who are broken and people who are unholy. And you allow us, through what Jesus has done, to call you our, in a possessive way, our holy God. Lord, I pray that you help it to be abundantly clear to us today that if it were not for the cross, that there would be no way that we could do that. So, Lord, I ask that your word would be clear. I pray that it would um, illuminate our hearts and set us in the right direction. We pray for your help. Help us to be full of faith that you will give it. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Laura and I uh, celebrated our uh, 31st anniversary this past week, which means we're getting ancient, but we're we're doing our best. Uh, So uh, 31 years. So about 30 years ago, a little over 30 years ago, when we first got married, we lived in France for about eight months. It was a delightful time and a great way to uh, start off a marriage. I'd recommend it, but for most of y'all, it's too late, so sorry. But anyway, when we lived in France, there was a, um, a phrase, I don't know if it's still prevalent, but at that time it was prevalent among the younger French people. And it was just a single word, and the word was buff. And it kind of just meant that nothing really matters. And so you'd ask them something, and they'd say, buff. It was just nothingness, really. So the older generation would get frustrated with them, and they'd call that generation the buff generation. It was just kind of come see, come saw, a little of this, a little of that. It really doesn't matter, uh, and there's just no, no deep interest in anything. Well, we came back to the States, and I don't know how long it was, uh, but in time, the, the phrase began to be popular with teenagers, the term that y'all have heard, whatever. And it just kind of means, I really don't care, just whatever. Well, I said in the first service that I just because I didn't care for it, I, I outlawed it with Ross. And I said, you know, you can like something, you can love something, you can hate something, but one way or another, feel something <laughs> about what's going on. And, uh, yeah, so I do think, as I said earlier, I think I made a monster because he does feel. <laughs> and sometimes he wears me out. He's so passionate. But as a dad, you like that. You want to see people engaged in, in life. Unfortunately, we're awash in a world that is drab gray, that where there's not a whole lot of color and there's a lot of meaninglessness in our world. And if you listen to some of our songs and you listen to some of our, uh, read some of the literature and you watch some of our movies, there's just a general sense of dissatisfaction and a general sense of despair. Not everywhere and not every uh, piece of media, But in some, there are there. In the late 60s, late 1960s, when he was in his early or late 90s, Bertrand Russell wrote his biography or published his biography. He was a philosopher, a mathematician, and he was agnostic. That is, he didn't know whether he believed that there was a God or not. But inside of this autobiography, he had uh, put in some letters that he had written in exchange with some of his friends. And at the end of one of these letters that he exchanged with a friend, he talked about the value of having friendships. But he finishes this letter to his friend with this paragraph. What else is there to make life tolerable? 
We stand on the shore of an ocean, crying to the night and the emptiness. Sometimes a voice answers out of the darkness, but it is the voice of one drowning. And in a moment, the silence returns. The world seems to me quite dreadful. The unhappiness of many people is very great. And I often wonder how they all endure it. To know people well is to know their tragedy. It is usually the central thing about which their lives are built. And I suppose that if they did not live most of the time in the things of the moment, they would not be able to go on. So he says that if we stood at the edge of the ocean and we cried out into the darkness, we might hear a voice. But if we did hear a voice, it would be the voice of one drowning and then it would return to silence again. Bertrand Russell, because he did not know whether there was a God, had no mechanism to see a grand story. If there is no God, then there is no grand story in history. And history is not moving in any particular direction. And if history is not moving in a particular direction, then our lives don't have any direction either. And a directionless life is at best, at best it makes up its own meaning. And that is kind of what we're encouraged to, to, to do today. There's no real meaning to the world, so make up your own meaning and find your own meaning. That leaves us very small, and it leaves us not living for something large. But that is what it is at its best. At its worst, it makes life pointless. As I stated earlier, our world is awash with the drab gray colors of meaninglessness. We're told that if we're going to find meaning, we have to find that meaning within ourselves because there is no grand story for the world. But the message we're going to look at that Paul gives this morning, the message that he preached there in Acts chapter 13, in that message he insists that there is a grand story. Our individual lives matter. Because there is a grand author, and this grand author is writing individual stories, and our individual stories find significance in the grand story that the great author is writing. So I'm going to, to this morning, we'll just walk our way through this message. The first thing that we're to see at verse 13 through 15 is just the setting. I read it, read, read, I read it to you earlier. But here's what happens. Paul and Barnabas, they're continuing on on this missionary journey. And so they go to this particular city. This, this name of the city is Antioch of Pisidia. It's not the Antioch that the church was at, but it's another Antioch. And they go to this city, and as there was their common practice, they show up at the synagogue. And when they showed up at the synagogue, the synagogue was doing what they always did in the synagogues. And all the synagogues that were scattered throughout the book of Acts, this is what they did. They would show up on the Sabbath, and on the Sabbath they would read from the law. That is, they'd read a section of Scripture from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, or Deuteronomy. And then they would read another section of Scripture from the prophets, those later books that come in the Old Testament. And so they would read this, and then they would, the leaders of the synagogue would ask someone who was there to speak and uh, elongate on what they had heard, or maybe introduce something slightly different, but to, to give a word to speak a word. And so they asked Paul on this particular occasion, and they said, if you have any words of encouragement, then uh, can, you, can you give us some words of encouragement? So that takes us, verses 13 and 15. Then you, so Paul begins to give this message, and that's what takes up the bulk of what we're going to look at this morning. Uh, 
We're going to break his message into three parts, and I think it's easy enough to follow what is going on inside of the verses. If you look at verse 16, Paul stood up, motioning with his hands. He said, men of Israel and you who fear God, and that will create our first division. And then at verse 26, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, that will start the second part. And then at verse 38, it says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sin comes. And that will be the third part. So there will be three parts that will break this message into just kind of following what, what Paul is saying. I think what we have here in Acts chapter 13 is a truncated version of Paul's longer message that he would have preached that day. Now, I want to give to you a little bit of a GPS of what I'm doing this morning. So the first point will take a whole lot longer than the second and third points. I say that because I don't want you to get nervous because it's going to take a little while to get through point number one. So let's dive in. God at work in history. The God who is there. Picking up at verse 17. So Paul stands up and he begins to say this about the nation of Israel at verse 17. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. In about 40 years, he, they wandered in the wilderness, and then they went to the land of Canaan, and all that took about 450 years. And then he appointed for them a judge, and then he appointed for them a king, and then he appointed another king. And then it will say to us that God appointed a Savior. Now, we're going to come back to that portion about the Savior in just a few minutes. But it's important for us to follow what is going on here. That we can say from Genesis chapter 1 that in the beginning God created the heavens and earth. But it's not as if God created the heavens and earth and then just left everything to go about on its own. Because what Paul insists and what he's telling these Jewish people and by virtue of telling the Jewish people, he's also telling us God is actively engaged in his creation. He sets about to do certain things as not only the author but the architect of what is going on inside of the universe. God sets about to do particular things. And as he takes that, the, the, the stories that he's laying out, he starts with that God created this nation from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it's about 85 people or so in, at the end of the book of Genesis. And then they go down to Egypt. And over the course of their time in Egypt, it swells to a group of about a million people. Well, this great big group of people go into the land of Canaan, and eventually they overtake the land of Canaan. But then God calls a judge, and then God calls a king, and then from that, God calls a savior. And so God is taking all of history, and he's kind of funneling it down to this particular point that Paul is bringing in front of the people. But it's important for us, I think, to see here the verbs that as they're laid out inside of these verses. So if you're looking... At verse 17, it says this, the God of this people, Israel, God chose. And then at the end of verse 17, it says that God led. And then in verse 18, it says that God put up with them in the wilderness. And then in verse 19, God gave them their land. And then at verse 20, God gave them judges. And then at verse 21, God gave them Saul. And then at verse 22, God raised up David. And then at verse 23, God has brought to Israel a savior. It's helpful for us to see that God is actively engaged in what goes on in the world. 
And so he raises up some kings. He deposes of other kings. He shifts and shapes everything that is going on in history. And God's aim in shaping history from the Old Testament is to funnel us down to this Savior that Paul now is going to talk about. And if we reflect on this just a bit, the whole of the Old Testament is given over to this explanation of what God is doing. So in Genesis chapter 1, we come into the, the Bible with the very first verses that God created. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it's not too far into the book of Genesis where we find out that man fails, man sins. And so then at Genesis chapter 3, we find that God, in response to man's sin, God kills an animal and he covers their nakedness and blood is shed. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the promise is given that someone is going to arise, someone is going to come. An expectation is set that at some point in the future, there will be one who steps on the head and crushes the head of the, the serpent, the devil. And so this budding humanity understands that somewhere out there, there's an expectation that someone will come and right the wrongs and bring about justice in the world and restore uh, people to God. That's in Genesis. You move forward then into the book of Exodus. And you have the, t uh, the, the nation of Israel there in slavery. And God brings about these plagues. And at the end of these particular plagues, there's, there's this tenth one where, where someone is going to die. But the nation of Israel is supposed to take a lamb and, and kill this lamb and take the blood from the lamb and put it on the doorpost. And when the death angel comes along, he'll see the blood on the doorpost and it will pass over the people in that house. And so the nation of Israel understands this. They do this, and then they're supposed to commemorate that. And year after year, they're supposed to remember that God was providing a way of deliverance. We move then over to the book of Leviticus, and it gives all of these rules and regulations for the priest. And there were supposed to be some things that were done, and, and the, the, the tabernacle was supposed to be this long and no longer, and this high and no higher. And the priests were supposed to wear certain things, and they were supposed to conduct sacrifices in certain ways. And all of it seems a bit mysterious and difficult to understand, but there was some things that were being laid out and some pictures and symbols, and all of it was pointing forward. None of it could take care of the people's sin. And so it left an expectation that there was something yet to come. You move then into the book of Numbers, and there's some numbering of things that are going on, and there's some genealogies that are laid out. You move into the book of Deuteronomy, and there in Deuteronomy, the law is given again, the Ten Commandments. And Moses talks to the people, and he says to them, if you follow after God, blessing will come. If you do not follow after God, cursing, judgment will come. And it's laid out very plainly for the people that there are two ways to go about life, one following after God, one refusing to follow after him. But yet Moses leaves this world at the end of Deuteronomy, and there's this expectation that more is yet to come. And so in Joshua, they go into the land of Canaan. And it says to us in this text at Acts chapter 13 that God defeated seven nations and brought them into this land. And yet still at the end of Joshua, things were not completely fulfilled. The promises that were made are not yet done. And so the people are left with some expectation of what is yet to come. You flip over to the next book, you enter into the book of Judges. And we find that the nation of Israel has turned its back on God, and they have walked away from them, from him. Every man is doing what is right in their own eyes, the judges tells us, and so God judges them, and the people repent, 
And then as they repent, God brings a judge that rescues them from their bondage. But they get caught in this cycle of again and again and again, following, failing, repenting, following, failing, repenting. And when you leave out of the book of Judges, they're still caught inside of this cycle of, of repentance and disobedience. But there nestled down somewhere inside of the time frame of Judges is the little book of Ruth. And it's this story about a man who falls in love with a lady. And he has to go through this, this ritual, this ceremony that was buried deep inside of the book of uh, the Leviticus. That talked about how a, a man would go about rescuing someone who was, who was destitute and without. And, and so he goes through this process. And, and the, the words that were given is that it's the kinsman, the family redeemer. And, and Boaz in the book of Ruth represents to us a redeemer. And leaves us with some kind of a picture of something. It seems like a book that's just kind of stuck there. But it's revealing to the nation of Israel and revealing to us that there is some expectation that something more is coming because when you get to the end of the book of Ruth, you have this slight small genealogy where it talks about Boaz and Ruth and then it works its way down to this man named David. You move then into the book of First and Second Samuel and it records for us how God put in place David and made him king. First, there was King Saul, who did not follow after God for all of his days. And then God raised up this second king, this King David. But then you go to first and second kings that record for us not so much the life of one individual, but multiple kings. And some of these kings followed after God, and God blessed them. And other kings did not follow after God, and God did not bless them. And that gives way then to First and Second Chronicles, which two books which just chronicle the history of the nation of Israel. And sometimes they followed after God and they received God's blessing. And other times they did not follow after God and they received God's cursing. And so you come to the end of this book of Second Chronicles and there you find that both sides of the nation of Israel, which is now divided, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, both of them have gone off into captivity. None, neither of them are at home in their own homeland. They've turned their backs on God. God has turned their backs on them and they are deported from their land. And yet, at the very end, the very conclusion of Second Chronicles, there's this budding hope where God says that he will restore and so it happens. And you go to the book of Ezra, which is chronologically a little bit out of order here. But Ezra comes back to the city of Jerusalem after the deportation, and he begins to rebuild the temple. And he doesn't rebuild it back to its initial glory. It's smaller, but it's a step, and it's a reminder that there's some expectation that there is something yet beyond this, some way in which God will rescue and some way in which God will restore and in the book of Nehemiah, they come back and they begin to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And it's not built back to the way that it was under King David, but it's built back nonetheless. But it stands as a testament that God is not done yet with the people of Israel, that there is more yet to come. Then there's that book of Esther in which when the nation of Israel was deported and they're in the land and somebody wants to destroy all the people of Israel and God brings rescue through this lady Esther somehow indicating to them that God wasn't done with them yet. God was still working with the nation of Israel. And then we have the book of Job where it indicates to us that this God who is engaged in what is going on in the world at large as he moves one nation from one place to another and, and scatters all of those things, he 
indicates to us that God doesn't get lost in the macro scheme of things. That he engages himself in the lives of individuals. And so Job says, my Redeemer lives and I will see him again. And there's some indication that there is yet something to come. There's an expectation that there's life after death. There's more than just his life. Then we make our way into the book of Psalms, this book of, of songs that are given to us to give um, voice to our emotions. Sometimes the Psalms are happy. Sometimes the Psalms are, are, are sad. Sometimes the Psalms are angry. But scattered throughout these Psalms are what Psalms that have been called now the Messianic Psalms. That is, they speak of a Messiah, someone who is going to come. And sprinkled throughout the Psalms, there is again and again this indication that God is not yet done. The promises given to David are not all that, that there is. That there is something coming down the road. And so the nation of Israel begins to hope for this Messiah. We go then to the book of Proverbs where we read that if we follow after God, there's good that comes. And if we don't follow after him, there's bad that comes. But still in the midst of all this... In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he'll direct your paths. Or the book of Ecclesiastes serves as kind of like a baptism to wash us clean of the notion that this life is all there is. And so the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes seeks out pleasure in all sorts of things, everything under the sun that he can imagine. He tries to find satisfaction in that, but he can find no satisfaction and so we come to the end of the book and it tells us to remember now your creator in the days of, the, of your youth. Enjoy the days you've been given. But these days under the sun is not all that there is. There is more yet to come. So we go to the Song of Solomon and here we have a man who is in, deeply in love with his wife and it indicates to us that God loves his people despite their failures, despite their shortcomings. And then we turn over to the book of Isaiah. And there in the book of Isaiah, the first 39 chapters are warnings and, and telling them that if they do not turn from their sin, that they will be taken captive. And the nation does not turn from its sin. And so they are taken captive. And so you go to chapter 40 and it says, comfort you, comfort my people. And so 40 through 66 lays out God's comfort for his people, even though they've been deported, even though they're nowhere uh, near the promised land. God will still be faithful. And nestled inside of that section, there's Isaiah chapter 53 where it talks to us about the suffering servant who will come, who will be pierced for our transgressions. And it's not fulfilled yet, but it places into the minds of this Israel nation that there is someone who is coming. We go then to the book of Jeremiah, the weeping prophet who weeps because his people have been overrun. But he still talks about somewhere down the road that God will change things and God will take the heart of stone that is hardened against obedience to God and God will replace it with a heart of flesh, a heart of tenderness, and a, a malleable heart that will respond to God. It's Jeremiah who also wrote, writes the book of Lamentations. As he weeps because he laments because the people have turned from God and God's judgment has come. But still, in the middle of lamentations, he remembers that great is your faithfulness. Your mercy is new every morning. And so despite the fact that they are under judgment, there's this clear understanding that God is faithful and that he is doing something and that God is at work. 
We go then to the book of Ezekiel where the Son of Man is represented and there's one who is coming who is described as a good shepherd that cares for his people. Or the book of Daniel that talks about a stone that that rolls down and, and destroys various nations. It's kind of in a picture but nonetheless, there's this stone that, that, that breaks down these, uh, these nations. And Peter, later on in the Gospels, talks about that being Christ. We could talk about Hosea and Gomer, his wife, who was a wayward wife, who went away and, and Hosea kept bringing her back. And it talks to us about a healer of people who return. And again, it points out to the nation of Israel that despite their turning away from God, there is hope and there is one who will heal and return. Joel talks about their restoring the years of the locust of Eden that somehow, in some way, despite their disobedience, despite the punishment that comes, God will restore them. Again, we can make our way through all these small book prophets, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, where it seems like the story is about a guy who got swallowed up by a fish, but it's really a story about a nation, Nineveh, a non-Jewish nation, who had turned their backs on God, and God treated them with mercy. We could go to the book of Habakkuk, where it reminds us that the just shall live by faith, and that despite the fact that the nation of Israel, having turned its back on God, was overrun by a nation even more evil than they, and the nation of Israel was confused by this. But the just will live by faith, not by their works. And it reaffirms to us later in the book of Habakkuk the faithfulness of God. And three times there in the final chapter, it talks about salvation, deliverance that will come. Or Zephaniah, restoring the nation that is in judgment. Haggai talks to us about the king over all nations. It's not David because David is now dead. So there's some expectation that there's something that will come later. Or Zechariah, a book that we don't read too often, but talks to us about the pierced one. It's not David. It's not Saul. It's not any of the other kings. It's not any of the, the prophets thus far. The pierced one. It also talks to us about a coming king. Interesting words for nations that are now out of power, out of their homeland, the coming king, or Malachi, predicts both the first and the second coming of Christ, or Micah that I skipped earlier, but it tells us that a ruler is coming out of Bethlehem. So you take all these things from the Old Testament, and, and they're laying out, they're creating an expectation of something that will come, and then we step over into the New Testament, we get to the Gospel of Matthew, and it opens up with the genealogy of all things. But these genealogy are anchor points like a, a rock climber who puts an anchor so that he can climb his way up the side of the, of the mountain. These genealogies are laid in there so that we see that what takes place in the New Testament is tied tightly with what has happened in the Old Testament. That God has been orchestrating all of this through history to lead it up to this point. So we get to the book of Matthew. Then we go to the book of Mark, and it's written primarily to the Roman non-Jewish believers. And so Mark explains these Jewish connections as he makes his way through. And then we go to the book of Luke. And just a couple chapters in, he also gives a genealogy. But in the genealogy of Matthew, they follow the line of, of, of Joseph, the, the earthly father of, of Jesus, back up to Abraham, the father of Israel. But when Luke creates the genealogy. He follows the line of Mary and traces it all the way back to Adam, the father of all nations. 
And then you go to the book of John, the gospel of John, and it starts out, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And you can hardly miss the correlation between John 1 and Genesis 1. In the beginning, God. In the beginning was the Word. The whole of the Old Testament is given over to this. And it's so pregnant inside of the Old Testament that if you put your finger down on the pages of the Old Testament, your finger is going to come up blood red. It's the blood of Christ, the Messiah, the sacrificial lamb. is all throughout the Old Testament texts. So we come then to verses 24 through 26 of Acts chapter 13. And it says, Before his coming, John the Baptist had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I'm not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I'm not worthy to untie. So it's almost like John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. He's, he's a prophet in the tradition of the Old Testament prophets. That is, he's preaching a, 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 a message of repentance, repent. But he's anchoring, holding on to the Old Testament with one hand, but he's straddling over into the New Testament. And on the New Testament side, he's pointing to the Christ. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God who is able to take away the sin of the world. The one who is coming is now here. And so John the Baptist is holding on to all these Old Testament stories, all these Old Testament prophecies. And he's saying, there is one who is coming. It's not me. Here's Christ. Behold the Lamb of God who is going to take away the sins of the world. And so John straddles these two things and points to Christ and says, this is the one. So then to point to Paul's second part of his message, God at work in salvation. How do you think people would respond to a God who is so active? You trace what is going on in the Old Testament, and you see that he's moving all of these things, and he's saying again and again, there's one who is coming. There is one who is coming. There's going to be a king who will live forever. There's going to be a king who will reign forever. And it told us in the text that these people read every week from the law and the prophets. And how do people respond to that? How do people who can read the blueprint of history react to this God who provides? How do they treat this Savior who is given to rescue them? Well, we pick up at verse 27. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree, and they laid him in a tomb. It's helpful for us to see the verbs that these people engaged in in light of the verbs that God had given us earlier in the message. All these things God did to bring himself close to people. And now his son, Jesus, God the Son, is here on earth to be the Savior, to be the Messiah. And this is what we did. We didn't recognize him. We condemned him. We executed him. We put him on a cross. We crucified him. And then we buried him. 
That's what we do to people who tell us that we cannot save ourselves. If we're not going to believe them, we have to get rid of them. And this is what we did. So what is God's response? He created the world. He created nations. He created people. He judged nations. He could have done anything. Here's what he did, verse 30. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days, Jesus appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news, the gospel, that what God promised to the fathers, he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus as it is written. So it says to us in verse 30 that God raised Jesus from the dead. In verse 33, God raised Jesus from the dead. Verse 34, God raised Jesus from the dead. And so Paul makes his point. Jesus is the one that all of your history has been pointing to. And the promises that were made to David were fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is God's son. But because of the resurrection, we too can become children of God. Verse 33. God gave promises of blessing to David. But because of the resurrection, we too can receive God's blessing. Verse 34. God promised David that the Holy One would not see corruption. And because of the resurrection, Jesus did not see corruption. And because he lives, we can live also. Verses 35 through 37. All of history had been leading to this point. All of history had been working its way to the cross of Christ and then the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And all of that history pointed to that Christ. But all of our history is pointing there too. If you look back across the course of your life and you see what God has done and you see how God has moved this and he's moved that and he's brought this person into your life and he's taken this person out of your life, all of that history... All of that story is designed to bring you to Christ, the Messiah, the risen Jesus. So how do we respond? God at work in individuals, verses 39 through 52. I'll not work our way through them as closely. But verses 42 and 43, many believed the truth. And they wanted to hear more about it. They saw that this Jesus was the answer to the Old Testament promise of the Messiah and they wanted their sins to be forgiven and so in their brokenness they came and they accepted Jesus and believed on him and followed after him. Many believed the truth. But verses 44 through 52, many challenged the truth. Some of the Jews didn't want to believe that Christ had died for their sins. And so they tried to muddle the issue and try to confuse the issue and contradicted Paul and Barnabas as they taught. And so we're given this warning at verse 40 of chapter 13. Beware, therefore, lest what, in the, what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I'm, about, I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells you of it. So the beware is this. We can be exposed to what Jesus has done and not accept it. There's a verse in John 5 that says, You search the scriptures because you think in them you will find eternal life. 
And it is those that bear witness to me, Jesus speaking. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. It's interesting, these people at the synagogue, they had listened to the law every, every Sabbath day. They listened to the prophets every Sabbath day. The law talked about a Messiah coming. The prophets talked about a Messiah coming. And then the Messiah comes, and they want nothing to do with him. The truth of the matter is, there's a lot of people who, love, who think they love God, but they stumble over Jesus. But Jesus is what the Bible is about. And if we're going to believe the Bible, we're also going to have to believe Jesus. And if we're going to believe Jesus, we're also going to have to believe the Bible. Don't become enamored with your good deeds. Don't become enamored with your good efforts. Don't become enamored with being a good person. The message of the gospel, the good news, is that we can lean on the Jesus who died for our sins and the one who rose again so that we could have eternal life. Bertrand Russell, to go back to him, was a brilliant man. He knew a lot of things, but he was wrong. If we walked out to the edge of the ocean with him and we cried out into the night, it wouldn't be silent. We'd receive two answers. The first would be the voice of God saying, He is risen. And the second answer would be thousands upon thousands upon thousands of voices responding saying, He is risen. He is risen indeed. And that is the message of the Old Testament. It's the message of the New Testament. And that is what the whole Bible is about. Because he lives, we can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because we know he holds a future. Life is worth living just because he lives. I'll ask you to pray with me as we get ready to sing another song. Lord, you give us your word to encourage us, to tell us about you, and to tell us about us. So I ask that you would help us to believe in you and to trust you. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.